Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. And the last time we saw uh, Jesus ministering to the, quote, unclean, the outcasts of society, and of course not by God's eyes, but by man's eyes. Men love to put other men down and subjugate them and so they can feel better about themselves. Of course, Jesus went purposely to those groups of people and uh, ministered to them, did healings, loved them as he did with the Jews. And today we're going to see the true Jesus, right? How many of you, raise your hand, remember that show years ago, it was a game show called To Tell the Truth? Anybody? Oh, a lot of you. Awesome. And that was a great show because you had these three contestants and one of them was the real person. And the, uh, the game players would ask them questions and they would answer it. Some of them would wing it and pretend that they were this famous person who maybe didn't have a lot of sight recognition. And at the end of the show, you would win if you figured out who was the real John Smith, so to speak. And at the end, they would all kind of stand, sit, stand, and then one person would stand up, and if you voted for that person, you win. Well, this is the real Jesus, because after 2,000 years, there are fictitious Jesuses out there. The Apostle Paul speaks about another Jesus, another gospel. He said, even if an angel of heaven or anyone preaches another gospel than what you have heard, let him, that preacher or that angel, be accursed. Okay, it's not the truth. And that's in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. So we're going to look at why it's important to believe in the real Jesus because someone who's not a different Jesus can't save. The, the true Son of God, uh, fully God and fully man, came down to earth, uh, divested himself of that heavenly abode that, that he deserved, and died on the cross for my sins and yours so that we would have everlasting life. That is the true Jesus of the Bible, the one that loved us so much, loved us sinners so much that he made that incredible sacrifice so that we could have eternal life. That's the real Jesus. Verse 1 says, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Well, the Pharisees were more of the traditionalist religious leaders of the day. And the Sadducees were more of the liberal religious leaders of the day. And these guys were opposites. You can see that a lot in, in, in the church today. And if you can get these two folks, these two groups, to come together and unite when they're always at, at odds with each other, unite against you spiritually, you're probably on the right track. Most of the opposition that came against Jesus really came from the religious establishment. And the question is, how many signs were enough? I mean, we've read enough of the scriptures where even in their presence, in the synagogues, he healed people. Right? The Bible says that he brought, uh, you know, he resurrected some. Uh, he fed, he did miracles with the food. So at what point was enough for these guys? However, these religious leaders were looking for a certain type of specificity. Show us a specific sign so that we can believe that you are the Messiah. And I guess my question is, how many signs do you need? How much evidence of the Bible do you need to see after you investigate it? How many prophecies, again, very timely, if, if there's a prophecy made in the scripture, it will come to pass 100% of the time because God is outside of time. He created time. So if there's a false prophecy, something that says, hey, this is going to happen 100 years in the future and it doesn't happen, it didn't come from God or any of his messengers. Do not believe them, the scripture says. How many lives do we have to see around us changed to go from self-destructive lifestyles and to walk with Christ and all of a sudden they change and they're productive and they're joyful and there's a peace about them. There's almost a glow about them. How, many, how much of that do we have to see 
before we believe in the Jesus of the Bible. God will make himself available to us. That's clear in the scripture. But he's also not a magician. He's not going to, we're not going to snap our fingers and he's going to do tricks for us. Some look for that, but that's not the God of the Bible. Verse 2. He answered and said to them, when it is evening and you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the, the signs of the times. So typical Jesus parable, he takes something in the observable world and he makes a, a spiritual application with it. Look at this. Now let's look at things spiritually, guys. And basically, there was a phrase, and it's been used for probably over 2,000 years, red sky in the morning. Now, if you lived in that part of the world, red sky in the morning, shepherd take warning. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Or you can interject sailor if you were a seafaring person. And basically, what that means is, from our perspective, not from an astronomical perspective, you have the earth and you have the sun. And from our perspective, during midday, the sun is high in the sky and there's more of a uh, a perpendicular um, trajectory to the, the horizon. Uh, when the sun is either rising or setting, there's a parallel trajectory. And what happens is as the sun shoots its rays and it kind of skims the bottom of those clouds, what it does is it diffuses the uh, blues and the purples of the electromagnetic, electromagnetic spectrum. And then all you see is the reds in the sky. So, red sky in the morning, shepherd take warning. Now, usually the weather patterns go in an easterly direction. So, if you're looking at it from the, from the east, right, sun rises in the east, in the morning, you'll see the sun shoot through the eastern part of the sky, hit the clouds on the western part of the sky. That red sky means that that's coming your way. You've got problems. And then the opposite happens in the evening when you're on the western side and the sun is setting. So if I don't make it as a pastor, I think I have a future in meteorology. <laughs> but this was very common. The people understood this. And he's saying, hey, guys, you could discern the signs of the, in the sky, but you as spiritual leaders, you don't see what the scripture says about the Messiah. Shame on you. Even Herod's court, the evil Herod. His, his court got together and looked through the scriptures and said, yes, about this time, here comes the Messiah. And then that prompted Herod to try to kill those babies, to kill his competition, so to speak, because he wanted to be the king of the Jews. And these religious leaders didn't know. Well, the truth is, we've covered this several Sundays ago, it was a willful and a purposeful disbelief. It isn't what they were ignorant. They didn't want to see it. And that, that's, you know, many see that today, or we see that today. I have plenty, plenty of friends who are Jewish, and I read the Jewish Publication Society Bible, and I say, hand it over, let me see, that's yours, and I show them the prophecies, and they're like, we didn't see this in synagogue, we've never been taught this. That's right, because it'll start arising, it'll start instigating a whole lot of questions that the leaders may not be able to answer. Now, do we think that doesn't happen in Christianity? After over 2,000 years, all the sectarianism, all the bickering over denominations, you know what causes that? That the whole counsel of God is not read. That the Bible is not read from cover to cover. You see, if I have a particular theological bend, I'm going to stay away from the scriptures that disprove my theological bend. So the answer is the whole counsel of God. And I think we see that over and over. 
Verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. So Jesus says to them a few things. Number one, you should know the signs, but then chides them for asking for signs. Well, what gives here? Well, we know that the sign of Jonah is a sign of a picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He says, that's all I'm going to give you. It's in the scripture. Look it up. Figure it out. Because what they wanted was they wanted to test God. They wanted to go beyond what was written. And God has a stern warning for those who do that. Again, this Harold Camping prophecy. Hopefully after next Sunday we'll be done with this. Hopefully. But there's a specificity that this man makes that he's going beyond what is written and he's actually going against what scripture says about not knowing the times. And I have good meaning, meaningful understanding Christians who come up to me and say, how does this work? He shows Daniel's prophecy and he shows this and that's the whole point is to pull scriptures and numbers all over the Bible so that you get confused and you say, well, he must be right. He's throwing all these numbers at me. He's not right. Okay, we'll be here again next Sunday. Some denominations live by supposed signs. If they don't feel excited or there's an adrenaline rush, then the Holy Spirit wasn't in it. Not true. A wicked and adulterous generation, Jesus says. Now, what does this adulterous mean when we're talking about spiritual things? It's a spiritual adultery. The children of Israel had God. They had his blessings. They had his promises. And they started looking after other gods of the pagans and comparing and contrasting. So they basically, as God was in a spiritual sense married to them, they left him for other gods. So there's your spiritual adultery. Making a god in their own image and worshiping it. Now, I would submit to you that our generation does the same thing. Our generation, those of us living today, though this time period, 2011, and it's sadly enough, even in the church it happens. It's smorgasbord religion. I will find the church that suits my lifestyle because my Jesus wouldn't do this. If I were Jesus, I would do that. What are you doing? You're taking a Jesus and you're fashioning him to what you want and making him fit your preconceived notions and your lifestyles. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. We need to understand that. Verse 5. And when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven, or the yeast, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. It's kind of funny, if you've been here for the last few Sundays, this bread issue keeps coming up. But when Jesus perceived it, he said to them, Oh, you of little faith, Why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine or the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Again, this issue of bread keeps coming up. But of course, Jesus is speaking about this leaven, this corrupting influence of this teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we covered this in chapter 13 in the parable of the leaven, where the woman hid it in three measures of meal, and it leavened all the bread. 
And Jesus is saying that leaven is destructive, that teaching. He's making a comparison. Stay away from that. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees are gone. Anybody part of a Pharisaical or Sadducean group? Anyone that you know? No, they're gone. However, their teachings are alive and well, even in the church. The Pharisees were legalists. The two of them made a God in their own image. They rejected the cross. They, they liked aristocratic teaching or theology, where Jesus, you know, I'll follow anyone as long as I can stay in this high position. They had high, important positions in society, and they didn't want those positions to, to let go, right? Outright denial of Jesus the Messiah. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Interesting, blessed are you. You're blessed because of this revelation, not the reverse, not that you're to be elevated over everyone else and that you're now the one that everyone should look to. You are blessed that God revealed this to you. You're the recipient of that blessing. Now, Caesarea Philippi is interesting because if you study it, that area, it was home to various gods and shrines and temples. It was multi-religious. We saw this with the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill when we went through the book of Acts, didn't we? And again, it's much like our society. My question to you is, what is your idea of Jesus? Again, 2 Corinthians 11.4, the Apostle Paul speaks about a different Jesus not to follow. Galatians 1.8.9, a, a different gospel. And to anyone to be accursed to bring that different gospel. Because it's a false gospel. Remember, whatever God does beautifully, think about it marriage, you know, um, any situation, Satan comes and tries to corrupt it. So some said John the Baptist. Clearly John said he wasn't the Messiah, but some wanted him to be. Some said Elijah. Ah, the glory days of the past, calling fire down from heaven. You know, a tough Elijah-like Messiah, but it wasn't Elijah. Some said Jeremiah. Oh, it's a different idea. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Oh, what a great guy. He had so much compassion. But it wasn't Jeremiah. And in Luke's gospel, some said that Jesus was one of the old prophets resurrected. See, I call this Goldilocks Christianity. It's true. This is something where we keep testing the porridge. We keep sitting on the chairs. We keep testing on the bed until we find the doctrine of Jesus that we like. And it sits well with me. What about the truth? What about the truth? What if there's two ideas of Jesus that are antagonistic to each other? Do we just pick the one that we like, or do we find the truth? It's Goldilocks Christianity. Even Matthew 11, Jesus said, John came one way, I came another way, and they said, ah, do you have a third option? The people were fickle. I kind of love this. Again, I love talking to my Jewish friends about the scriptures because uh, resurrection, as you can see, was an Old Testament concept. And the people back then understood the resurrection. 
I, my, my friend and I go back and forth, and I'm like, hey, he goes, you, you evangelicals are always talking about sin. I said, bro, let's go back to the Torah and let's look at sin here, you know what I'm saying? I said, we got it from you guys, you know, so it's pretty neat. But do we see this today? Different interpretations, vastly different. There are some Jesuses out there that you could follow, uh, well-established religions, where Jesus is actually the spirit brother to Satan. They're equal with each other. And they both bid for the plan of salvation, and Jesus won and Lucifer lost. Now you find that in Mormon theology. Jesus, the wealthy Messiah, he's so wealthy, he had that seamless tunic, right? They go on these obscure passions of, uh, passions of, uh, passages of Scripture and make a whole doctrine out of it. He's the wealthy Jesus. You have the uh, Jesus, the good prophet, just a good man, and Jesus becomes the archangel Michael. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. So there's a lot of Jesuses out there. But I'm pretty sure following a different Jesus won't get you eternal life. Peter gives the correct answer. And Jesus makes sure that Peter knew it didn't come from him, but it came from divine revelation from the Father. Even today, natural man navigates the natural world. Peter didn't just come up with this because he was a bright guy. It was given to him spiritually. The spiritual man, the Bible says, not only knows the, spirit, the uh, natural world, but the spiritual man also knows the spiritual realm. So that person has a, a, a bigger picture of what it's all about. As believers, our thoughts come into our heads in one of three ways, and I want to explore this because this is, this is fun. And sometimes it takes a little time deciphering these issues. And the third one, I'm going to actually split it into two. So the first one, in Peter's case, it came from God. God gave him that thought. God gave him that concept. And Jesus rightly immediately picked, on, picked up on it. It wasn't by your flesh and blood. That was from the Father. I had a situation this week where there was a businessman in my office. And he was talking about something for five minutes. And I said, forgive me. I need to stop you there. And I proceeded to tell him about his life, what he was going through, and what his, his personal issues were. He stopped and he looked at me. He goes, he said, what's God showing you about me? I had no idea. There was no way I could have known about his situation. I just met the guy for the first time. And it was something that the Lord gave me. It wasn't about me. It was about the Lord trying to reach this man. And it was amazing. We uh, ended up praying in my office uh, as a result of it, uh, in, in the direction of his life. Two, thoughts come from ourselves. Who can understand the physiology of the brain and the mind? how the, the different parts of the brain and the lobes and memory and emotions all kind of work together. You ever drive in the car and you listen to an old song and it brings you back to high school, <laughs> right? Some of you are smiling, or college, or, or whatever the case may be, and a memory comes up. How does that happen? I don't know. It just comes from ourself. The third way a, a decision or a thought or a concept can enter us is from Satan. And we're going to see this with Peter's case later on. Well, there's the obvious evil. I could be minding my own business, thinking about something good, and then a really awful thought comes into my mind. Whoa, i got to deal with that. Let's push that out and go somewhere else. So that's the first category when Satan puts a thought in your mind. The second category, and this is the one that's tougher, when Satan puts a thought in your mind that seems good, those are the rough ones. And Peter fell into this trap. Hey, it seems good. God would really like it if you did this. He's setting you up. It's a trap. And when that happens, it's happened to me too, i got to pray about it. i got to look in the scripture. Is this really in harmony with God's word? 
for those guys who are predicting the end of the world. It's an evil thought. It's an evil entertaining because it's against what Scripture says. Although it seems good, I want to warn the world to turn around and repent. Hey, that's what we preach. Hey, that's a good idea on the surface. But of course, when it doesn't come to pass, how, how is God mocked by that? Not a good thing. So some thoughts, they seem good, but it, t- it takes time. It takes confirmation. It takes the Scripture to, to decide whether that's a good thought or a bad thought. Verse 18 Jesus says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is important because there is a doctrine out there that says Peter was the first pope, and that Peter was the rock on which the church was built on. That's a problem. First of all, the church. This seems to be the first mention of the church in Jesus' ministry. The word is ecclesia, which literally means those called out. So the church is not the building, it's not the wood structure, it's not the arches or the steeple. Oh, it's not there anymore. Uh, But the church is the people that are called out from the world to be sanctified and separated for the purposes of God. So is Peter really that bedrock? Let's investigate. He says, Peter... Uh, Peter's name was Simon, but Jesus changes his name to Petros in the Greek. And Petros means a rock fragment versus Petra, where he says the church will be built on the rock, different word. Petra means a massive rock structure. So who is he referring to when he speaks about the rock, the, the massive bedrock that the church is going to be built on? Well, if we go back to the Old Testament, whether it's Deuteronomy or Psalms or Isaiah, God says, I am the rock. There is none like me. There will never be another like me. So how could a man now take that rock uh, understanding and build a church on him? It can't happen. Petra is also used in Matthew 7, which we covered, when Jesus says the wise man builds his house on the rock, on the massive bedrock, and he's speaking about himself. Then the rains come and the floods, and that house will stand strong because it's built on the rock. And he says, hear and do what the Lord commands. He's the rock. Now, I would just say this. If I could take the Greek and try to turn it into English and and have an understanding of what Jesus says, really he says this. If we look at the whole translation, Jesus says, Simon, that's his name. You are now little rock. You're a rock fragment. Petros, that's my now name for you. And on on this rock, on this rock structure, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. So he's saying to Peter, you're a fragment, but you're a part of me. And you can find strength and comfort in me. And the church is built on me. Right? Or or Peter's confession that he is the rock. So uh, 1 Corinthians 3.11, the Apostle Paul says, there's no other foundation that can be laid other than on Christ. So that's what makes sense here. Verse 18, he says, the gates of hell. Now, The gate, understand, in those times, the gate was like the municipal complex. It was the power of the city. Uh, The important dignitaries would be in the gates, and they they were not just high, but they were deep. And a lot of transactions and things took place in the gates of the city. So the gates of hell, in other words, the power of hell. Now, let's look at this, because hell is an English rendering. So let's put hell aside for a minute. There's a few words in, in the Bible. Number one, Sheol in the Hebrew and Hades in the Greek were always known as a place of the dead or the grave, or a temporary holding place until Jesus' substitutionary death. 
and later final judgment. Now, there's two other words that have a more stronger rendering is Gehinnom, which we understand is, is the Aramaic, and the Greek rendering of Gehinnom, which is Gehenna. It's a transliteration. This is an understanding of the eternal place. After the judgment, this is where the, the uh, disobedient, the rebellious will go for eternity, regardless of what Rob Bell says in his book. It's all here in the scripture. So again, that word hell is, a, is an English rendering, but we need to understand what's behind it. This is more a picture of, of Hades. But, so what are we saying here with this uh, point of scripture? Number one, that death is not the end for believers. Thanks to Jesus, and when he came, and we remember Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus, right? Uh, Abraham was in one place, and the saints, and the, 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 other, the other people were in a bad place, and they couldn't get to each other. And we know that Ephesians tells us that before Jesus ascended, he first descended and led the captives free, right? And he gave gifts to men. So what do we have here? We have that death is not the end for believers. Thanks to Jesus on the cross, death is just, you know, if in, in this moment I have a heart attack and die, my body falls to the ground, my spirit that's eternal goes to be with the Lord. Not even a millisecond goes by. It's like me walking into another room. Who I really am is not that pile of flesh and bones that just fell on the floor. Who I really am and what my essence is, it goes to be with the Lord. So that's a good thing. Death is not the end for believers. And the demonic world has limited power because of Christ. We see this in the scripture as well because of Jesus. A true believer cannot be possessed by the devil or a demon. We have certain protections as believers. So the gates of hell... For 2,000 years, many have predicted the death of Christianity. Um, however, in 2,000 years, the Lord's, what the Lord established is still going strong. And especially on the continent of Africa and Asia and other countries, it's amazing how quickly people are crowding into the kingdom. There's just a mass uh, desire for the things of God. So it's very exciting. We live in exciting times. Verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, since the revelation of the church, he turns to the disciples and he charges them. We see this in other scriptures, too, where he's speaking to all of them collectively, and he repeats this about binding and loosing. It wasn't just uh, for Peter's sake. Now, number one, the keys, again... In the 21st century, I have to make this stuff explainable to us because our culture is vastly different. In those days, there was a key, there was a lock, and it opened the lock. Um, you know, it's not a picture of Peter at the pearly gates with a huge key ring like the heavenly custodian. He says, hold on, let me, let me open the door for you so you can get in. It, it's, that's the picture, but that's not what's happening here. The keys are understanding of access. In today's society, in the 21st century, we would say, I'll give you the password, right? Computers. But the truth is that what is the keys? The keys or the password is a relationship with Christ. It's an ongoing relationship. Because of their relationship with him, these are the benefits that they will receive. These are also the benefits that we receive. We have the keys. Now, binding and loosing was a rabbinical term, which they would have been familiar with. And for us, uh, it's a little bit hard to understand. But basically, to enable or to prohibit. So in other words, we have the power to what? If there's a demonic presence, if somebody has an addiction to heroin or something really bad, we can pray in the name of Jesus Christ that, that the Lord would break that addiction, that he would bind the strong man. And sometimes it doesn't happen right away. It can take years. 
But we have that power to access the, to, the, to our Heavenly Father to have him do these incredible things. But we can initiate it. Um, another thing is to loose, to release, or to enable God's power on the earth. You know, as a Christian, I've been a Christian for years, and uh, in my life and in my experience, I've seen God do amazing things. I love to go to a hospital when the surgeon says they're not going to make it. And I'm like, you know what? That doesn't sit well with me. Let's pray. And I love to, it happened with my mother's husband. You know, he was dead for 10 minutes, nothing, no heartbeat, no breathing. Prayers, 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 prayers. He gets in, he's got one of the best surgeons. They, they put him, they freeze him. You know, they chill him down to put him on ice, so to speak. He eventually comes back. And the surgeon, the surgeon goes, I don't understand. And we basically proceeded to tell them what, what, what we believe. And this has happened many times. It's just nobody can understand it. The professionals don't understand it. But it's the power of God. Somebody who is a, a guy who's going to be speaking a few Sundays from now, the guy's a homeless, he's a heroin addict, he's, he, he, he threw everything away, his life, he's living on the streets. He's now, God brought him back, he kicked heroin, he's a pastor, he has a family. The fruit, tell me that's not the power of God. Does that just happen every day? Of course not. We have the power to do that because it's given to us from the Lord. Let me read you something. I'm not a Greek scholar, but Wuest, um, Kenneth Wuest is. I always have trouble with his name. And I want to read what he says about this passage. He says, and whatever, this is how the, the, the exact Greek translation comes through. And whatever you bind on earth or forbid to be done shall have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, permit to be done, shall have already been loosed in heaven. That gives a whole new flavor to it, doesn't it? When you expand the understanding of those words. And basically what's going on here is that if you're not a believer, if you're an immature believer, you constantly pray for things that you want. As a believer matures, the believer realizes that I want to be on the bus. I want to be on God's bus. I want to be on the train. It's taken off. And I don't want to be on the platform. I want to be a part of what God is doing. So when we pray, we try to pray in line with what God's will is. Now, does that mean uh, that we shouldn't pray anything for ourselves? No. Of course, God loves us, and he wants to even hear our small prayers. Sometimes I lose my keys, and I get frustrated, and I stop. I'm like, Lord, I can't find my keys. Where are they? And all of a sudden, they, you know, I find my keys. You may think that's ridiculous, but when you really need to find your keys, you know, you do whatever it takes. <laughs> But the truth is, as a mature believer, we, we pray, Lord, I want to be a part of what you're doing. So Wuest translates it in that when we pray for something amazing that, that you know, is, is spiritual, uh, God had already decided that he was going to do it. You just kind of caught the vision. You see what I'm saying? When we're immature, we, we want God to catch our vision. When we're mature, we want to catch God's vision and be a part of it. So I think he does a great job in explaining it. Now, he says, tell no one, probably for two reasons at this point. Um, at number one, both camps, pro-Messiah, anti-Messiah, they're already settled in their ideas at this point. Those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they're going to stick to it, and those that don't, won't. Two, probably because the triumphal entry needed to happen at a certain uh, day in time in human history, and that wasn't the day. So tell no one. Now, that brings us to another uh, point, which I want to cover, especially since in light of the prophecy of May 21st being the end of the world, what can we know and what can we not know? 
based on what the scripture says. What is knowable and what is not knowable at, at these, these milestones in human history? Number one, the triumphal entry was known at the time, but was not known prior to the Persians sending the command to rebuild Jerusalem. In other words, if you go back to Daniel 9's prophecy, Daniel, the angel tells Daniel specifically that you will know when the Messiah will come um, in a certain time period from the command of the Persians to send the Jews back to rebuild Jerusalem. So anytime after that, an observant Jew could figure it out. And that's probably why he had such a tremendous following, because there were many observant Jews at the day. Two, the rapture, God calling his people home. It's unknowable until it happens. That's a no-brainer. Right? It, once it happens, we know it because it happened. So now it's the past instead of the future. But we don't know when it will happen. The Bible's clear about that from where we are standing right now. Three, the second coming and judgment. Right now, we don't know when it is. However, once the rapture comes, uh, there's a, a good possibility we will know because once the church age is over, the world is left to the Jews to evangelize again. You have to understand Daniel 9. Daniel's prophecy was specific to the Jewish people. So there's a period of seven years in the prophetic calendar that hasn't taken place yet. So in other words, once the rapture comes, if you're pre-millennial and pre-tribulation, you can count seven years till the judgment. But the rapture hasn't come yet, so we don't know when the judgment is. So bottom line is, from where we're standing right now, we don't know when the Lord's going to come back. But once it happens, we'll know. Does that make sense? (laughs) Some of the stuff is just simple. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine that. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Wow. How quickly Peter fell from a position of revelation. He went from a block to a blockhead in a matter of a few minutes. That's Charlie Brown, right, blockhead? Two few important points that we can take from this. Number one, I've seen in my life, I can be in the spirit one minute and be in the flesh the next. What does that tell us? that we need to constantly walk with the Lord. There's times I pray, Lord, I am just not in the spirit. I am in the flesh. And, and I, I, I need to get back. <laughs> I need to be back in, in your arms here because I'm, I'm floundering out here. And hopefully we have the wherewithal to understand when we're in the flesh and when we're in the spirit. We need to walk with him daily. We need a relationship with him. Every Christian needs that. It isn't that we read the Bible and then go off for a week and come back to see the Lord again after a week and ask him how he's doing doesn't work like that. It's a daily walk. Two, if I'm going to figure out who's the rock here between Peter and Jesus, especially this, um, after this, I'm going to put my money on Jesus. All right? Number three, again, some things that are suggested to us that Peter thought was good. Think about how good it sounded. Oh, Jesus, you know, everyone loves you. You heal people. You just fed all those people. What? You got to go to the cross Far be it. It should never happen to you. If I have to protect you with my own life and draw the sword, I will do it. And he did do that later on. Sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? It was an evil thing. It came from Satan. Christ had to go to the cross. Otherwise, we would never have entrance, him, the disciples, everyone, into eternal life. So thankfully, Jesus 
you know, the son of God rebuked him and said, don't even spread that around. That's bad, you know. So it's interesting how we do get these ideas that seem good, but they have to be tested with scripture and prayer and time. Four, in the flesh, we will always choose comfort for ourselves over sacrifice. In the flesh. When we're in the flesh, it's all about us. How can I get mine? And the truth is, we are suffering servants of the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant, and at times we will be suffering servants of the suffering servant. Jesus says, if they don't receive my message, you know, the disciple is not greater than the master. You're taking my message. Guess what? You're going to be rejected too, and you're going to suffer. So it's going to happen at times. At the time, neither, neither Peter nor the disciples wanted any part of that. And today, there's a lot of believers who don't want any part of it either. We live in America, the American dream. Sometimes it competes with our walk with the Lord. Are we entitled to anything in this life? No, not entitled to anything. We're entitled, listen, we're not even entitled to salvation, but the Lord loved us enough to provide it free. Many will change churches and find a different Jesus and a different gospel because it suits their lifestyle. They don't want to hear this stuff from the pulpit. And Peter didn't want to hear it either. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I say that to those, and that was me 20 years ago. So driven, so type A, so I'm going to get what I want. Bought my first house while I was in my 20s. Fixed it up, sold it, bought another house. That was me. I was going to get whatever I wanted. I was going to reach as high as I could, as high as the highs. But I left God behind. And you know what? In my life, I was humbled, and uh, I was receptive to hearing his plan for me. What, what good would it do if I gained the whole world but lost my own soul? Think about that question, especially if you don't know the Lord, especially if you're so business-minded, if you're so driven-minded that you leave the Lord in the dust. It's an important question. In Luke's gospel, not only does he says, follow me, but he says, follow me daily. He adds that, right? I want to read um, Luke 9.26, one verse. In Luke's gospel, he recalls, Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Listen, our society is antagonistic to the cross. The Bible says deny yourself. Society says love yourself, indulge yourself. If it feels good, do it. The Bible says deny reliance in your gifts and talents. Rely on the Lord. Um, society says laud your gifts and talents. You should be, you know, you should laud yourself if you're a self-made person. The Bible says stay the course. Don't depart from God's word. Walk with him daily. Society says that stuff is archaic. It was written thousands of years ago. Let's have a discussion on God's relevance today in our society. And this stuff has gotten into the church. The way of the cross. I will say this, that Roman and Jewish culture clashed big time back then. There were always clashes between the Romans and the Jews. Uh, however, one thing that the Romans 
and the Jews could agree upon was that crucifixion was abhorrent. The Romans wouldn't speak about crucifixion in polite societies. As a matter of fact, if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. That's why the Apostle Paul was beheaded, because he was a Roman citizen. In Jewish culture, all the way back in the Torah, it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Oh, our Messiah is hung on a tree. That is offensive to us. Yes, it is offensive, but he was cursed so that we could have life. He was cursed so that we wouldn't be cursed for our sins. He died so that we could have life. So we, we need to rejoice in that. Now, this doesn't mean take up your cross. It doesn't mean that we should petition the government that, to have us all crucified. That's not what it means. Um, I, and it's a shame I have to say that, but sometimes there's such a literalness taken, and they're not understanding the concept. However, we may have to sacrifice. We, and check out, look, listen to these words that I'm going to say, and you tell me if society likes these words. Today, all right, as a believer, we need to sacrifice. We need to be obedient. Self-denial may be in order. We may have to change if necessary. His will, not our will, we need to put our life in his hands. The way of the cross is to glorify God even if it's unpleasant or odious to us. Losing and finding. So many try to find themselves happiness, purpose, joy, peace, and they're looking in the wrong places. Achieve, achieve, achieve. I've got this house, I need a bigger house. I've got this car, I need a nicer car. I've got one kid, I need five kids. You know, Some of you are like, whoa, that's too many. But the point is that we look in the wrong places. And what happens is, it's like Solomon said, it's like, you know, he did it. Solomon was one of the, arguably one of the richest men. Trump didn't hold a candle to Solomon in the Old Testament when you read everything that he had. But he said trying to hold on to this stuff was like grasping for the wind. Can anybody grasp the wind? You can't do it. And that's what Solomon likened it to. It's futile. So I just want to ask you this question as we get closer to the end. You want to find real purpose in your life? A lot of books are written on purpose. A lot of Christians are buying them because they don't have a sense of purpose. Serve the Lord. Get on board. Pray. Ask him what his will and his purpose is for your life. You can have a boss. You could, have, you know, you could be your own boss. But the best person, the best person, best boss, the best leader, the best teacher is the Lord himself. He'll never lead us in the wrong direction. Get on board. Jump on board and do what the Lord has called you to do, what you were designed to do. That's the best way to find purpose in your life. All right, verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 28, it does appear that... Um, you know, there's a chapter delineation in chapter 17, but remember, chapter delineations came centuries later. It's not good or bad, it just is. Uh, so we're going to cover 17 next Sunday. However, this really ties into the transfiguration where they start to see the Lord in his glory, right? where they see his, his divine nature just really manifest, and, and, and it's mind-blowing. But he keeps speaking about... Um, the Father and his angels in glory, because Jesus came as the lamb first. When he comes again, he will come as the lion, as the lion. No more crucifixion, no more um, 
you know, that stuff is going gonna, is gonna to go away. And we're going to get to see that, and that's going to be incredible time. And that's not the time to decide whose side you're on. And Jesus says, if you're ashamed of my words, when I come again in glory, I'm going to be ashamed of you. you know, if you hold fast to my words, you may be persecuted by people here, but we will be accepted into eternal habitations, no comparison. We're talking about eternity here. Great portion of scripture. So the question is, what are you trusting in? And if you say Jesus, which Jesus are you trusting in? And I've seen this. The ethnic Jesus. He only saves certain types of people. The powerless Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses. He's a lesser God than God the Father. The wishy-washy Jesus of the emergent church. This is the Jesus who doesn't offend anyone. Right? And, and the sacrifice of the cross. Well, the cross is not necessary for salvation. The wealthy Jesus promises you unending health and wealth and never to grow your character, never to go through a trial. And if you, if you don't have that health and wealth, it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. Now, I don't know where the line is between the true Jesus of the Bible and some of these aberrations, but I don't want to find out. I just would rather stick with the Jesus of the Bible. Right? This, this is an accurate, tried and true book. Or what about the bobblehead Jesus? I mean, let's just go on. You ever see those Bible heads and you press them on the head and there's a spring and they do this? Yes, I love your lifestyle. Yes, you're always right. Yes, don't worry about it. Or the mirror, mirror on the wall, Jesus, always telling you you're the fairest of them all. Seriously. It, it sounds ridiculous, but that's what happens when we make a God in our own image. We just want the Lord to, to confirm what we believe and we'll, we'll go through every doctrine until we find one that suits our lifestyle. But what about the truth? I will tell you this. I'm not a prophet, but I can say that the world's not going to end on May 21st because somebody falsely predicted it. So that may put some of you at ease. But I will say, if you don't know the Lord, don't, don't run to that too quickly because our lives will come to an end. And we don't know when our days are numbered. And we really need to consider eternal life. And the only way to eternal life is through Jesus. Jesus says... I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But he also allows everyone at any time to repent. Seven billion people on the earth now or more. At the same time, heaven's big enough. You can all repent, come into the fold. That's how loving God is. He's exclusive, but he's all inclusive. And that's the, parad the paradox there. There's only one way to salvation. However, all are invited into the kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you again for your word. What a blessing it is. It's, it's encouraging when it needs to be. It's convicting when it needs to be. It's powerful all the time. And Father, Lord, we just...